Okay, I'm here with Michael Wara. He's a senior research scholar at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment and a fellow at the Stanford Law School. Michael has both a law degree and a doctorate in oceanography, is that correct? That's correct, yes. yeah. Um, his work at Stanford focuses on providing bipartisan technical and legal assistance to policymakers engaged in the development of climate and energy laws and regulations. So thanks for sitting down today, Michael. It's great to see you, David. Uh, we're going to talk about California today, and California is uh, unique among states in a couple of ways. First, they've always been an environmental leader. They've established a suite of uh, fairly aggressive environmental performance goals for the energy sector that are too numerous to, to list here. And second, it, it suffered quite famously a, a crisis in the electricity sector in the early part of the 21st century when the competitive electricity market fell apart there. And Prices soared, uh, PG&E filed for bankruptcy, there were rolling blackouts and that sort of thing. Um, and those are, that, that, there's still sort of legacy effects of that, I would imagine, in California even today. So I want to ask questions that are sort of based upon that background. So first, let's talk about um, uh, electricity rates in California. They're among the highest in the country. Uh, twice the rate we pay in Texas, for example. So how does California address the problem of affordable electricity for its poorer residents? Well, I think um, several decades ago, California decided that the right approach to managing its potentially conflicting goals, right? Affordable electricity, very um, strong environmental performance, was to focus on the electricity bill rather than the rate. So most discussions of electricity concern the rate, the cost per kilowatt hour. In California, there's a ton of focus on what the average monthly bill is and what the distribution looks like for monthly bills. By investing heavily in energy efficiency, California has been able to create a monthly bill impact that's relatively modest, even while having very high electricity rates. Now, that works best, that, that approach works best when you live in a fairly equitable climate like the ones that exist, say, in the San Francisco Bay Area where the ocean cools things off. It works less well if you live in the hotter parts of the southern Central Valley. Unfortunately, the distribution of low-income electricity customers is very biased toward the Central Valley and the hotter parts of California. What that means is that the folks that are on the low-income assistance rates tend to be located in those areas predominantly, not completely, of course, but, but they're more likely to be there. So um, their bills are lower because they're on a low-income assistance rate, but they're still quite high relative to national averages. And so there are issues with energy poverty um, in California, and they tend to be localized in the very hot regions of California that are relatively more low income. So the, the overall strategy has created a situation where on average bills are low enough to relieve the political pressure that would otherwise exist to keep rates under control and keep rates lower than they are, but there, that doesn't work for everyone. And so there are tensions in the system. And so are, are those uh, groups in the Central Valley that experience relatively high bills by national standards, but bills that are low by California standards because of income assistance programs? Am I getting that right? 
So the, the, the bills the bills are high by national standards, um, and they would be much higher if, but for the fact that the people, the customers in question, are on special electricity rates that are available to low-income customers in California. Okay. And just to relate back to something you said earlier, part of the reason that the rates are so high in California is paying the costs of the bankruptcy and of the electricity crisis. In 2001. In 2001, which are still with us in California. And those were, those were uh, the, the legislation that was passed in the aftermath of the bankruptcy that helped to kind of stand up the electricity system again basically allocated all of the costs of the crisis to high-income rate payers and none of the costs to the low-income rate payers. And so it also created this very large dispersion in residential rates and that, that has created the, the incentives to move toward net metering that exist in California to some degree, right? California isn't Hawaii in terms of its residential rates, but it has quite high rates, especially at the margin for the uh, higher income customers, the customers on the regular R1 standard rate. And that has been an important force driving the deployment of rooftop solar in California. And can we relate this to the, the very recent news about moving to default time of use rates, which will, at least during the peak periods, push the rates quite a bit higher, but in the off-peak periods will be slightly lower. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so the time of use, the move toward time of use, um, which would, which does exactly what you suggest, uh, on-peak rates will be higher, and off-peak they'll be lower than they are now. Um, is really motivated by a desire to get away from that high marginal rate in the in the highest tier of the residential for the residential customers that's driving a move toward net metering and, and toward dist distributed generation. And so time of use was opposed by the the rooftop solar companies to a significant degree and it was pushed by the utilities as a way to kind of undo some of the unintended consequences of the electricity crisis and the, the approach to resolving that crisis. Yeah, so since we're talking about distributed solar, I'm going to ask a, quite, a little bit of a follow-up question on that. So um, you've got a lot of rooftop solar in California, uh, not controlled by utilities. Uh, it's, uh, it's created this famous duck curve issue, which requires a lot of generation to come on very rapidly in the late afternoon or early evening. Um, how is California, what's the plan in California for dealing with this duck curve problem simultaneously with uh, aggressive decarbonization policies? So this is a, a core challenge that the grid operator in particular has to surmount in California to keep the lights on. And I would emphasize that the challenge, the duck curve is created not just by the rooftop solar, but by the enormous amount of utility scale solar that we've cited in California, something like 13, 12, 13 gigawatts of utility scale over the last decade. Um, the approach, the current approach, is using flexible, dispatchable resources like the hydro system in California and natural gas fired power plants to manage the fluctuations in what we call net load, which is demand for electricity minus the must take solar and wind uh, energy production and to, to manage the, the large swings in that net load 
using flexible resources. And so it's led to the creation of a whole bunch of new kinds of wholesale power products in the power market. It's led to a move toward very short um, settlement windows in the power market, you know, from, from one hour to 30 minutes to 15 minutes to now five-minute intervals. And, and, and it's, it's, it's led to this need to really ensure that the, the flexible gas power plants that can turn on and turn off in a matter of minutes are around and available. Uh, in the long run, California wants to move away from gas-fired power plants because we want to go to very deep decarbonization. And the obvious solutions there are um, you know, leaning more on hydro, uh, creating price-responsive demand, uh, deployment of batteries in the system to replace peaker plants, and that's something that's already beginning to happen in California, uh, and potentially expanding the market beyond the California borders, ex- expanding the market beyond the footprint of California's carbon policies so that we can lean on other um, parts of the Western United States when we need a whole bunch of power or we need to give power, we need to shed power over the border. Yeah, unless, as we, we, you and I just came out of a meeting in which we talked a little bit about this, and that, that works unless and until the rest of that Western market goes green the way California does. That is right. Yeah. I mean, there are some inherent advantages to, to having a large east-west footprint just because of, we're dealing with the sun, and mm-hmm. so the time of day is different, and so you get to, that, that can improve the situation to some degree, but yeah, once Nevada and Arizona and all the other western states go the direction of California, it gets a lot harder. Yeah. Let me ask one other question about the heavy, heavy adoption of um, rooftop solar in California, which creates the duck curve issue. Um, on my handy Cal ISO app on my phone, I sometimes look at it in the afternoon and look at prices, and sometimes in the spring or fall in the afternoon in Southern California, they're negative, presumably because of so much solar on the system, both both types of solar or net load, mm-hmm. low net load, and then lots of utility-scale solar, right? Some percentage of that rooftop solar is being paid at the retail rate, the stuff that got, the ones that got in before that metering chain was, was mm-hmm. revised. Mm-hmm. And the utilities are having to buy, I guess Southern California Edison in this case, is buying a lot of that at that rate, and then they have to somehow get rid of it on the wholesale market. Now, maybe they send it out to Nevada. Uh, I, I don't know what they do. Can you tell us a little bit more about that situation and whether there's any sort of dissatisfaction with that situation among, among ratepayers? So I think you've described that situation accurately. There are definitely situations, especially in the springtime when it's not very hot yet, and so AC loads are low, Mm -hmm. and yet the sun is high enough in the sky to make the solar plants produce a lot of electrons. You get these situations really commonly where California is producing more solar energy that it can absorb on its own or manage, and some of that energy is getting dumped into the broader Western market. some of the, the big solar power plants that could be that are controllable by the California ISO are actually being curtailed. They're being turned off by the grid operator. Um, and that creates its own set of questions and economic impacts. Um, but at the same time, there's this growing segment of rooftop solar that's, that's getting uh, a payment for its um, generation that's at the retail, or cl- not quite the retail rate, but close to the retail rate, even as wholesale market prices are far below that, um, and, and the, the Edison or 
or um, other gener or generators may be paying the market to take their power. Mm -hmm. um, the costs of that are ultimately borne by ratepayers, and I think that you know, two things are happening there that make that acceptable. One is that what I just said to you is extremely confusing, and people don't understand. <laughs> um, and that's the reality, yeah, right? No, and 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 the other is um, that people really like rooftop solar in California, and they're, they the state is um, wealthy enough. You know, some you know enough people in this state are wealthy enough to support the policy. You know, the the political economy of rate making is really changing in states where there's a lot of rooftop solar. When there's a rooftop solar proceeding at the California Utility Commission or in Arizona at the um, Arizona uh, Corporation Commission, it's you know, thousands of people show up. The phone lines at the PUC crash because they're not designed to deal with thousands of Sunrun customers being told to call in to make sure their rates don't get changed. The It's really expanded the universe of stakeholders that are engaged and um, particularly in the aftermath of the Nevada rate case where there was sort of um, uh, changes made to the rate structure for people that had already bought their solar panels that undermined that investment. I think there's a real attention paid by people who do have solar on their roofs so that the politics of it are very different. And there is a willingness to, to tolerate what to of a system optimizer's perspective would seem really a suboptimal outcome where we're, we're wasting money to some degree. Um, Do you see the same strange bedfellows coalition in support of rooftop solar from the sort of left and right that you see in other states? Sort of there's a sort of tea party type of constituency yeah. and then there's also the environmental constituency. The, unfortunately, the um, tea party constituency has been mostly run out of California. Um, and so we really don't have don't that, that same kind of green tea, bootleggers and Baptists kind of dynamic mm -hmm. at the California Commission. Um, the, but there's such a strong support for distributed generation um, in California that you don't really need it. Um, and so, or you don't need it to get to an outcome like the one we have. Mm -hmm. um, Last question. We, we um, I think it's important to talk about a one another big phenomenon that's happening in California, which is related to all this, which is community choice aggregation. Could you talk a little bit about how that's affecting uh, the California system and where you see it heading in the future? So over the last few years, the last five years perhaps, um, about a quarter of the load of the demand of the energy served to customers by the um, investor-owned utilities has moved to being served by essentially municipal providers, these so-called community choice aggregators, or CCAs. And what CCAs are, are generally a coalition of local governments in an area that get together and decide they want to provide electricity to the customers that live in their communities. Customers don't have to have the CCA as their provider, they can stay with the investor-owned utility, but in practice, most people end up switching to the CCA. And it's really changing the energy conversation in California in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, one thing is that 
at first it wasn't clear that there would be much interest in this model or kind of a, comp a competitive provider with the utility. But it has, become, it has become apparent that most of the load, maybe as much as 80% of customers are going to move into these kinds of um, arrangements. So that's changing the outlook for the investor-owned utilities. They're becoming, whether they like it or not, wires only provide, you know, providers of wires and not of energy. Um, the, the CCAs themselves are diversifying in terms, you know, initially it was kind of rich, liberal, very pro-environment parts of California. I think like Santa Monica and Marin County uh, that were kind of interested in this stuff. But it's really diversified into a much more, a much broader set of communities, low-income, high-income, communities that have a lot of industrial customers are moving to a CCA model. And, um, and, and that's kind of broadening what the CCAs do. But the, I think maybe the most interesting piece of this is that because the CCA is formed by local governments, it's governed cooperatively by a regional kind of patchwork of local governments and local government leaders. And that allows for a much more kind of um, holistic approach to energy governance in a particular region and then, then, a, then an investor-owned utility that's electricity only and has no control over land use or planning decisions can, 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 can provide. And so I think it's too early to tell where that's going to go, but it's an interesting experiment. Um, I think there are reasons to think it might work out really well, and there's also totally reasonable concerns that one could have about the CCA model and where it's going um, and its ability to be robust to the kinds of shocks that we observe from time to time in energy markets. Yeah, fascinating. And, and I, I believe, would I be right in saying that CCA arrangements involve the CCA paying their share of grid costs? Is, that, that's correct, isn't it? That's right. They pay a charge for the, they pay a wires fee, right. and they also pay essentially an exit fee that pays for the, the costs associated with the uh, customers that have left the utility and gone to the CCA, the costs that are left with the utility from those customers. Right, and so the utility is sort of the overcapacity essentially left with the utility as a result of all that. Yes, yeah. yes. Does that fully compensate other ratepayers for the utility? It's supposed to. Yeah. It's an extremely difficult problem to resolve what those charges should be, and you can imagine that the utility thinks they should be higher, and the CCAs think they should be as low as possible, and the commission tries to get to some fair outcome somewhere in the middle, and it's hard to know who's right. Yeah. Not, not, not unusual in the utility context. Yeah, it? right. Just and reasonable. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for talking to us, Michael. It's been fun. Thanks, David.